Now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. I'm Callie Crossley, this week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a special edition looking at the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. And yellow, but first I gotta bang, bang, the boogie to the boogie, say up, jump, the boogie to the bang, bang, boogie, let's rock. That's the iconic 1979 hip-hop song, Rapper's Delight, by the Sugar Hill Gang. Fifty years after its birth, hip-hop, with its roots in the voices of marginalized communities, is now an integral part of mainstream American culture. From a rapping Pillsbury Doughboy... It's me! Uh, here's a rap that you should know, made with Pillsbury Crescent Rolls. ...to dialogue in movies... It takes two to make a thing go right. <laughs> it takes two to make an ...to speeches on the floor of Congress. And present the truth to the American people. That is why we are here, Mr. Seculo. And if you don't know, now you know. Here's a brief history of hip-hop's early years. August 11th, 1973, Bronx, New York. DJ Cool Herc was using two turntables to play the same song, switching between them to elongate the instrumental parts. What started as Cool Herc's innovative DJ party groove was amplified by new masters of ceremonies, or MCs, spinning and scratching at house and street parties. Africa Bambata, AKA Master of Records, one of the early originators, used this new sound to draw kids away from street gangs and violence. During that first decade, the new music genre established its signature turntablism, breakbeat DJing, and scat-style rhyming lyrics. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five named the genre and took hip-hop to another level with its song, The Message. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a trouble sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Still mostly unknown outside of black and brown communities, hip-hop reached significant milestones in the 80s, the first rap single was released, and Curtis Blow's The Breaks topped more than one million sales. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got what it takes. Because I'm Curtis Blow, and I want you to know that these are the breaks. Hip-hop artists expressed their tears and triumphs in their rhyming lyrics. They spoke back to racialized political and social oppression and spoke to the intra-violence inside their communities. Here's KRS-One's self-destruction. Back in the 60s, our brothers and sisters were hanged. How could you gangbang? I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan, and I shouldn't have to run from a black man, because that self-destruction. By the end of the 80s, hip-hop embraced so-called gangster rap. So if you want to take a trip to the road, let a nigga like Snoop Doggy Dog know. Protected by niggas with big dicks, AKs, and 187 skids. So if it's a must you test us, we can handle it in the streets. And spread to new audiences after a remix of Run DMC's Walk This Way with rock group Aerosmith. Yeah. 
But it was in the 90s that America became hip-hop nation and in the ensuing years became the biggest and most influential global music genre in the world. Joining me now to discuss hip-hop at 50, Dart Adams, Boston-based writer, hip-hop expert, and blogger. Welcome, Dart. Hi. Danielle Scott, professor at Berklee College of Music. She's also a hip-hop MC and a Brown University PhD student. Hello, Danielle. Hello. Also with me, Don Alessa Fisher, associate director and co-founder of the Hip-Hop Archive and Research Institute at Harvard University. Hi, Don Alessa. Hello, and thank you. I'm glad to have all of you. I would like to um, start at the beginning, actually, um, because people may be able to intuit what they think hip-hop is by listening to that little brief intro. But I'd like for each of you to define it so that folks can have an understanding of how broad and narrow it is. So I'll start with you, Dart. Uh, hip-hop is a culture. It's a far-reaching culture. It's the most dominant youth culture on the planet. Uh, it is in its 50th year, but it incorporates uh, uh, DJing, uh, b-boying, or breaking, as it's commonly called. Uh, MCing is one aspect, and of course, you know, there's a graffiti art, and you know, all these other, all these aspects of the culture come together to form hip-hop, but People's idea of hip hop is usually relegated just to rap music. And it's bigger than that. Oh, much bigger. Danielle, what would you add? Um, one thing that I like that Karis one added was um, some other additional pillars like hip hop fashion. Um, I, I agree with Dart that hip hop is a culture, but that culture also outside of the arts um, includes the, um, the fashion and also the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and uh, I think also the cipher is something that I would add that is a big part of the sharing and expression of hip hop culture, whether or not you're an artist or um, somebody who's um, looking into the culture. Don, Alyssa? Exactly. Um, building on Dart and uh, Queen, hip hop is a culture. It uh, it encompasses, uh, Queen uh, referenced the Refinitions by KRS-One, so it's inclusive of lyricism, beats, mural arts, uh, fashion, entrepreneurship, uh, and the overstanding or uh, overarching element of knowledge and knowledge production, therefore including not only culture but cultural workers. Uh, we look at language, body movement, dance, and so ritual and so forth. Okay. And Queen, in your reference, is to Danielle Scott, who is the hip-hop MC Queen, so my listeners can keep up with what we're, where we're going here in this conversation. Now, uh, something we didn't hear uh, much of in that little intro were the voices of women. So I wonder if we're going to talk about um, where they were as, and, ha and where they are, actually, as uh, the years have passed, uh, because they were very much there at the, at the outset as well. Um, and but struggling to get the kind of recognition that men often did. And um, uh, I want to start there with you, Don Alyssa. What's your take on why it was that women had to sort of fight to get their voices heard at the beginning? Well, nowadays we have words uh, that have 
uh, seeped from ivory towers into social media circulation, words like misogynoir, which is the explicit anti-blackness against uh, people that identify as women or non-binary, for example. So there's there's a compulsion to not seeing and citing black women and non-binary artists. Uh, that it that said. Uh, women and non-binary artists have always been there. We, we, we read about their contributions. Um, uh, it, when we look at deep into blues aesthetics and, and, and see all of the women that uh, led in all art forms from gospel to blues to rock and of course, hip hop. And so in all, in all aspects of, of the culture, uh, lyricism, I think one of the most iconic hip hop bells to rock around the world is uh you know the battle that includes like rock shantay for example and of course nowadays uh uh it's this is this is a time where uh women in hip-hop are dominating not only radio waves through the music that we listen to but in every other aspect as we always have as executive directors as curators and so forth all right let's listen to Roxanne Shantae's The Real Roxanne. This is 1988. I was walking down the street in the afternoon. I gave you a smile so you assumed that if you said hello, I would be flattered. But I kept walking and your ego was shattered. I'm Roxanne, the lady devastator. I make it feel hotter than it is in Grenada. The R-O-X-A. That's the real Roxanne, Queen, Danielle. Um, what do you got to say about that? <laughs> I think um, one of the... One of the great things about Roxanne Shante is that she was so uh, un unassuming, you know, um, and she was just cut your throat with her lyrics. Um, and I, I love that she was just so young, so, you know, petite, but was such a, the pen that she wielded like a sword was incredible. Dark way in in terms of women in hip hop, they've been there since the beginning. Uh, the very first uh, rap records that come out included Paul, uh, Paulette and Tanya Winley uh, of Paul Winley's Winley Records. Uh, and they're reportedly, according to Paul, they recorded the first rap record ever, but he held on to it because he didn't think there was a market for it. And when it came out, he finally released it in 1979. And then um, uh, Tanya, known as the first Sweet Tea, uh, started rapping. You have Lady B in Philadelphia, who was uh, early in the hip hop scene, and she released To the Beach Y'all. Um, you had so many women, including like uh, Pebbly Poo. You had uh, uh, the Mercedes ladies who never were on record, but were battling and doing shows and right there with the guys. Uh, you had young women that were in the scene early. And of course, everybody knows about Shaw Rock of uh, the Funky Four Plus One More. And uh, when we talk about uh, Roxanne Shantae, she was the got the light that started uh, a whole new generation of women rapping from 1984 on. She birthed a whole new wave of women. You know, the reason why we can have an MC Light, the reason why we can have a Queen Latifah, the reason why we had Yvette Money and all these other women jump into the game, and especially Salt and Pepper. They were inspired by hearing a 13 and 14 year old girl go up against grown men with the biggest record in the world. So when we look at hip hop and women's uh, uh, influence in there, um, they've always been there, but we haven't given them their proper due. We think about the sequence. 
the sequence was one of the biggest acts on Sugar Hill and rap, the rap industry wouldn't really exist if it wasn't for the fact that Sylvia Robinson was the one who started this all back in New Inglewood, New Jersey. So women have always been at the forefront of hip hop culture and especially rap. Here's Salt and Pepper, 1986, Push It, one of the legacies of Roxanne Chante. Would you all say that uh, Salt and Pepper, coming from the legacy of Roxanne Chante, as you've discussed, was this transformative moment in this history of uh, hip-hop. I'm trying to identify those moments as we go along. Would would you say that, um, Queen? I, I I personally was influenced by Salt and Pepper. They were one of the first female rappers that inspired me beside Queen Latifah. Um, I was actually Salt for Halloween. That was how <laughs> much I was, in, you know, engrossed in in their music. For me, for me personally as an MC, they started me on the journey of falling in love with hip hop and I could really see myself as a black woman. Queen Latifah is one of the reasons I put Queen in my name. She was the first black woman that demanded the respect of royalty, demanded um, uh, royal treatment. Um, Besides my mother, she was the only woman that commanded that kind of respect from men. Um, And um, just to piggyback on what Dart was saying about women in hip hop, there's a wonderful article um, by Jennifer Stouffer talking about crate digging starts at home. And it talks about, you know, quiet as is kept, that the first DJs were mothers and play cousins and big sisters and and that African Bambada's, um, you know, first 200 records that's, you know, archived um, and on display are, belong to his mother. So women have always been there, um, even if we were behind the scenes and not on the mic, we have been driving this culture. For me, when I think about uh, songs that stood out uh, from female hip hoppers, Queen Latifah's were the ones that stuck. Uh, here she is with Ladies First. The ladies will kick it, the rhyme, it is wicked. Those that don't know how to be pros get evicted. A woman could bear you, break you, take you. Now it's time to rhyme. Can you relate to a sister dope enough to make you holler and scream? Hey, yo, let me take it from here, Queen. She was joined on that record by uh, Moni Love, who did a great job. It's just a really fantastic song. Uh, and when you look at just the the canon of uh, hip-hop songs, of course, this is one that uh, entirely made her career. So I want to talk to you all about other transformative moments um, as we look from the 90s forward. The 90s um, really were capturing the attention of, of hip-hop you know, us outside of those communities that birthed it, as I said, um, and now everybody's into it. But there were moments along the way that stood out. Um, and I want to know from each of you which ones stood out. Um, and we should say, uh, Don Alyssa, that uh, the work that you do at the archive for Harvard is to uh, collect um, these works and to do scholarly work on uh, looking at this culture as you have described it. Uh, so that we can have a better understanding of where it fits in the general spectrum of music, uh, but also understand its importance. So for you, is there a particular transformative song, a moment um, f- 
from the 90s forward? Yes, I what immediately came to mind probably is say, for example, Oaktown's 357 being on uh, Yoam TV raps and so forth. But if you don't mind, I'd like to just further sing the praises of like how transformative salt and pepper was um, in that it in Queen Latifah, the, the samples that we just heard, we're hearing sonic innovations, we're hearing changes, um, we're seeing fashion and, uh, and, and integration of knowledge um, that was holistic and touched all parts of society. When we think about like salt and peppers, let's talk about sex. We're breaking barriers and flame keeping um, with that with that work that set the that set the stage for what we see in the 90s in which the content expanded and exploded to include multiple regions multiple topics um, that you know that ranged from child support to just many many topics uh pay equity and so forth so but if you asked me about a a, a breakout moment in the 90s and lauren hill I mean, there's just so much. <laughs> I want to play a little bit of Lauren Hill's um, do up that thing and, and then get to the other two of you to see if you feel this was a transformative moment as well. So here it is. Girls, you know you better. Watch out. Some guys, some guys are only Start that Lauren Hill's moment, do up that thing was a very popular hit. Was that a transformative moment in hip hop? Absolutely. Um, it bridged uh, from the score that the, the album that the Fugees made is a recovery from their first album, which was very disappointing. Their sophomore album, The Score, became an international hit, was huge, spawned the refugee all star movement. And that led for that led to Wyclef putting out, you know, the carnival and it allowed for uh Proz to become a star. But Lauren was by by far, far and wide, the shining star of that group. Her vo she was the best MC and she was able to sing and vocalize and harmonize and put a bunch of songs that they made that would have been really hard over the top and make it appeal to a wider audience. And Lauren could do that and put the sweetness on a song and still come out with the hardest bars of anybody in the group or anybody who would come on as a guest star. And then she uh, went off and did her album with, with uh, at first it, the credits were very off <laughs> and she went, uh, she went off and did her album with, um, with help from some prominent producers and, and a crew. And she made one of the all time greatest albums, not rap albums, albums, period. And that changed everything because there are certain albums that come out that change people's ideas and their perspective of what hip hop can do, what rap music can do, how it can affect others, how it can affect change. And Lauryn Hill's album, uh, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, was definitely one of those records. Danielle, Queen, weigh in. Was Lauryn Hill's The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill transformative? Oh, absolutely. I think also that her um, combination of um, or her display of all of her talents, her songwriting talents, her um, exploring more of her singing and rapping um, was really um, genre breaking at the time. I think 
um, you know, very similar to where we are right now in terms of hip hop being considered just rap music and rapping, um, she uh, showed that hip hop was more than that. And as a hip hop artist, you could be more um, uh, than that. You can be expansive in how you step to the mic and how you express yourself on the mic. Um, and I think that uh, I think that that picks up the 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 baton from Queen Latifah, who was also doing a lot of singing her own hooks, doing all of the um, the background vocals for her songs as well, but in a in a way that really featured um, uh, her other talents and put them on display and in the spotlight, as well as just how how crazy she was on the microphone as a just as an MC lyrically. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and this is a special full hour of our look at hip-hop's 50th anniversary. I'm Callie Crossley, and joining me are Dart Adams, Boston-based writer and hip-hop expert, Danielle Scott, professor at Berkeley College of Music and a hip-hop MC, and Don Alyssa Fisher, associate director and co-founder of Harvard's Hip-Hop Archive and Research Institute. We're discussing the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. So... Um, here's just a fun fact. Um, when that album came out, the then anchor of ABC News led the newscast with it, which is a pretty big deal, to say something akin to your kids already know who this is, but you probably don't. But this is a very important album. So that just speaks to, at that point in time, how hip hop was actually and had actually moved into uh, across the board, all communities was drawing attention, even from news people, <laughs> just to, just to uh, to make that clear. So I want to play uh, a few pieces from the, the 90s that speak to, I think, and have each of you uh, respond to it, um, just how um, the 90s were going in so many directions, but yet under the umbrella of hip-hop uh, to show the variety uh, that could happen uh, with this genre. So one of the first... Uh, choices is Public Enemies Fight the Power. Now, we've discussed that uh, many of these songs had to do with, you know, speaking to communities about standing up for themselves. This is certainly one of the very important ones. And this is really something because they're saying, you know, stand up, stand up, stand up, and, you know, fight the power, which is the man, essentially. So here's Public Enemies Fight the Power. At the same time, hip-hop was so influential in other arenas, as uh, all of you have said, other musical genres, that it reached over into religious music. And this is Kirk Franklin, some may know, leading a choir. And this is religious music and his God's Property, the people in the choir, performing Stomp. This is a 1997 hit. And one last one, Notorious B.I.G. song, Juicy. Remember rapping Duke, the hard, the hard. You never thought that hip-hop would take it this far. Now I'm in the limelight because I rhyme tight. Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade. Born sinner, the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? 
Cleaner, peace to Ron G, Brucey e. B, King Capri, Funk Master Flex, Love Bug Star Ski. I'm blowing up like you thought I would. Call a crib, same number, same hood. It's all good. Uh. And if you don't know, now you know. So all three of those, I thought, hit different points uh, in history and, and, and also spoke to why the 90s were so important. Um, Danielle, do you want to take it about um, explaining to the rest of us why these pieces, these particular pieces, really spoke to the time and um, the legacy of hip-hop? Sure. That's the, <laughs> the pressure. Um, uh, one of the, well, I think all of the the songs that you played captured um, the sound of blackness in the nation. I think that's one thing that was that the 90s, um, the hip hop of the 90s really captured like the spectrum of, of blackness. Like you go from fight the power to juicy, which is this celebration of, of the comeuppance, not just of Biggie himself, but of his community uh, who he's able to put on, but also um, Black people and hip hop in particular. Um, I I think the line that we always we always sing along, and I don't think many people realize what they're saying when he says, "Remember rapping Duke, the ha the ha." A lot of people don't remember rapping Duke. You know, it was a it was a a song that was made to as kind of like a joke song about hip hop. Um, and so we go from this hip hop being a joke and thinking that it's just a phase of, of music, like a, like how a teenager goes through a phase. And then he says, you never thought that hip hop would take it this far. You know, um, now hip hop is in Harvard. Hip hop is in Brown. Hip hop is, you know, um, no longer relegated to the, the pre filming of the Grammys, it's on the Grammy stages, it's in country music, it's, it's you know, um, all around the world. And, um, you know, I think what, you know, Juicy is one of my, one of my favorite songs, um, but I think what Biggie said in that moment, just in that one little line um, was like prophetic, you know, in terms of how far hip hop was going to take it. Um, and I think that 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 line in particular always re always resonates with me. Um, but in, in terms of um, fight the power, I would say is my is one of the other, you know, I'm just speaking from personal experience as an MC. Fight the power taught me um, as an MC, it had me consider what kind of artist I wanted to be um, and had me consider what uh, the power of my words on the microphone and um, how words on when they are amplified through a microphone can can mobilize, not just entertain, but mobilize while entertaining. And I think that was something that was so um, impactful to to the type of artist that I that I became. While the things about Public Enemies Fight the Power when it was released in July 1989 is that the group was almost over. The song saved the group. They were about to break up. Uh, because there was an issue with uh, Gr uh, Professor Griff saying some um, anti-Semitic things and Def Jam didn't want to put out their next album and they were going back and forth with the media and Def Jam was almost done with them and Public Enemy was about to disband. But Spike Lee had a film coming out called Do the Right Thing 
and he had already tapped Public Enemy to come out with a song, an anthem, and they based it on a, a Isley Brothers song, and it was coming out in the summer. So 1989, a number, another summer, the song comes out. Shortly after that, um, we have a young brother get lynched in Brooklyn, Yusef Hawkins, um, and Public Enemy is all the way back. That song kicks off a whole nother thing. Uh, there's a whole new feeling in the community. Uh, Public Enemy's back. Uh, we need this type of music. We need this type of energy. And they launch into Fear of a Black Planet. You know, so that is a landmark thing that happened uh, with Public Enemy. And a lot of people don't even know that Public Enemy was almost over before that song happens. Wow. Donna Lissa? Yes. <laughs> I'm feeling what Bart is saying. Yes. Uh, the way that, say, my teens, uh, my teen son's generation has grown up with hashtags and various types of social media to spread the word. Hip hop was the way we spread the word. Um, it was the way we um, let people know that we were in solidarity across time and space. And I remember, you know, just feeling I was actually in a, a a rural area of the United States, uh, Ozark, the Ozarks in Southern Missouri at the time where there were a lot of uh, various types of lynchings and um, police killings and um, other horrible racist things happening that weren't being covered in the news. And so to see, um, to hear Public Enemy, number one, as Dart said, to pull out my mother's album, right? And, 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 and breathe life into, uh, again, and to fight the power and to see the video, the visual of, of, of the parade of people gathered, I felt protected um, and, uh, and inspired. And likewise, um, the same with Stomp and, and Juicy to an extent as well. I mean, for Stomp, it was bridging worlds that were um, sometimes pit at odds, so these gospel music worlds and these hip-hop music worlds, it was this coming together in a place where we could party and still communicate our politics. Um, and again, Juicy, uh, the you can do it, the inspiring message. Uh, I personally had that song, on the CD on repeat when I typed out, because that's <laughs> that's my age, right? When I typed <laughs> out my college applications <laughs> in the 90s. When Juicy came out over here, uh, we never played the A side. We only played the B side, which was unbelievable. But Juicy was getting played on the video shows and on the radio, but we only played unbelievable. It's interesting that like Juicy is such a huge song and people know it and it's a sing-along. And it was picked by uh, the BBC as the number one rap single of all time. I was involved in that, um, in that thing and I was in shock that Juicy won. So... I mean, I understand why Juicy is a huge, you know, song and it's a landmark, but I never played it. I only played Unbelievable. But that speaks to those networks, right, Dart? Yeah, like um, people mm -hmm. pass things along and then it catches in the flame keeping mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. it takes on a life of its own across generations, you know? Yeah. There you go. Well, coming up, how much has hip-hop influenced American culture outside of music in 50 years? And how are today's hip-hop stars taking the genre into the future? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. It's funny how money changes situation. Miscommunication leads to complication. My emancipation don't put your equation. I was on the humble you on every station. Someone play young Lauren like she done. remember not to game the one that was gone. Nothing can stop me. I'm all the way up. Hey. All the way up. All the way up. Oh! 
Welcome back. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. We're taking the full hour to recognize the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. I love the uh, obvious demonstrations of how hip-hop has, you know, gone beyond its boundaries if people thought it had boundaries. And I just want to uh, play a few of them right now so that we can listen to them about and, and, and folks can hear um, how it is really seeped into our culture now. This is a, a, a montage, really, of uh, MSNBC's Ari Melber. He's an anchor there quoting hip-hop on his show. The argument that he presents is vintage 50 Cent. I'll do what I want. I don't care if I get caught. The DA can play this tape in court. Another way to put it is, started from the Biden, now we're here. Uh, no greater authority than Jay-Z's song 99 Problems when he says, my glove compartment's locked, so's the trunk in the back. I know my rights. You're going to need a warrant for that. Also, on the campaign trail, a president, well, not then-president, but uh, then-candidate Obama talked about taking criticism from Hillary Clinton and finished by brushing the dirt off of his shoulders, a reference to Jay-Z. When you're running for the presidency, uh, then you've got to expect it. Uh, and, you know, you've just got to kind of let it. You know, that's what you got to do. And uh, here is Martha Stewart making mashed potatoes on her show with none other than Snoop Dogg of the aforementioned gangster rap. So, mashed potatoes, we're back again. Uh-huh. Uh, the potatoes have been boiled. I've never done it with a machine. Yeah, that was easy. So how do you do it with a... Yeah, we in the hood. We like... (laughs) I just wanted to play those because, um, Dart, you have been famous for saying people are using expressions from hip-hop they don't even know came from hip-hop because it's such such, uh, buried into the fabric of America at this point. Yeah, I mean, when we look back at things... um, the first time hip hop was on primetime television was on 2020, July 9th, 1981. Uh, in, in 1983, you know, we have like a, a, a mini explosion of rap. By 1984, we finally have uh, rap and hip hop movies in the theater, you know. Um, and then after that, you know, you're going to you watch TV, you see kids popping and locking for Hershey's, and you see you're rapping. Uh, uh, Fred and Barney, you know, selling Fruity Pebbles. So by the time we get to 1990, when we have the Arsenio Hall show, we have In Living Color, we have uh, have a house party in the theater, and then the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is on television, there's no going back. Because that's the year that, you know, uh, MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This comes out. That's the year that Vanilla Ice uh, releases... um, Ice Ice Baby, and after that, it's over. You start seeing rap on the top of the uh, pop charts. You start seeing rap on the top of the Hot 200, um, and it's never going back. So rap and hip-hop culture have pervaded American culture and captured the zeitgeist for so long that people don't even realize that what they're doing and what they're saying comes from our culture. They type it out on the internet. Um, there are people that call it uh, Twitter talk or, or this what the kids say on TikTok. No, it is black culture. It's A-A-V-E. 
It comes from hip hop. It comes from that entire culture. And you are so far removed from it. You don't even understand what you're saying. Now, um, Don, Alyssa, of course, you're studying this, uh, watching these trends as part of the work that you do over at the Hip Hop Research and Archive at Harvard University. So how do you see this? Doing this work with the skills as a linguistic and cultural anthropologist, um, studying, you know, uh, excavating uh, linguistic codes and having the tools to identify and prove this over years has been very um, helpful and uh, it's this is this is this still dominates in topics of classes that I teach so uh, student you know uh, people may not know that the word the origins of the word slay or something like that I mean for many of the reasons as you as you as you laid out with the samples from popular culture with the news anchors and so forth many people don't um, yeah, don't know the origins and so forth. And yet that's why the work of the Hip Hop Archive is so important to not lose our past, to root in the presence and stay future seeking. And Danielle? I think that uh, one of the things that I do in teaching hip hop performance is, um, is encouraging and requiring students to go back to find out these artists that they love that they want to they, they come in wanting to perform these songs that they want to come in and perform where do they come from who is influencing these hip-hop artists or even these r&b artists that are quoting hip-hop songs and 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 uh, these producers that they want to emulate um so it's so important to um to remind especially this newer generation that you know is accessing everything on the internet um, to remind them that everything comes from someplace, that there is history behind the language that you're using on TikTok. There's history behind the language that this artist is using. Um, there's history behind the sounds that these producers are using. There's history behind the ways that these people perform, the choices, the clothes. Um, you know, I remember seeing uh, Kendrick Lamar perform I on SNL. And I'm like, he's quoting in his body, in his outfit, and the black contacts he wore and how his hair, hair was half braided. Um, he's quoting Method Man. And if you if you don't know, you know, we always say, if you know, now you know. Um, <laughs> but yep. if you don't know, you don't know. So, <laughs> so I encourage my students to 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 go back and to to get excited about this informal scholarship that is embedded in hip hop culture that is so fascinating to me because in being in the academic space you know we always talk about the importance of citation um and and proper accreditation to you know the people that are influencing your work and the people that you're quoting in your papers and so on and so forth um but we never talk about how that happens informally in hip-hop there's so much scholarship that happens in in a hip-hop verse just in one verse sometimes in one line and it's important that for me that my students uh, investigate that and and have a leave my classroom with a spirit of investigation and get excited about learning where these things are coming from. Hmm. Now, something that uh, did happen over the years as as time passed, um, we saw the entrance of white rappers. So Eminem comes to mind, of course. But if you fast forward to today, Jack Harlow is very, very popular. 
love you all to weigh in on this. Um, you know, there's a lot of contra controversy about, is this real hip-hop? Is it not? Um, you know, all right, Dart, go ahead. <laughs> there have been white rappers uh, early on. Um, the first white rapper that everybody knows of is Blake Lethem, a.k.a. Um, uh, Blake 79, um, Keo 79th, uh, Lord Smog uh, of the Monster Island Czars. Uh, he was rapping as Vanilla B back in 79, 80, 81, hanging out with the Kango crew. There have been white rappers. The Beastie Boys were always hanging around the punk scene, and then they eventually became MCs, hanging out with Run DMC and Hollis crew in around, uh, around 83. So we've always had white rappers. They've always been white artists, but they always understood or had to understand that they were not the face of the culture and they couldn't be the face of the culture. They were allowed to be in it and they had to earn their due. They had to earn, they had to earn their uh, respect and pay their dues to be in this culture. So when people talk about white rappers, like it's not a new thing. I'm about to turn 48 and there have been white rappers as long as I can remember. I'm going back to the late 70s, early 80s. They weren't prominent as they were. The problem is that you have white rappers and what happens is they have so much commercial appeal that people gravitate to them and think they're the end all be all. That's what happened with Eminem. Eminem, incredible MC, uh, incredible technically, doesn't make great albums. But the thing about Eminem is that Eminem sells a lot of records. And Eminem has a lot of followers. And these kids uh, cite Eminem chapter and verse thinking he's the beginning, he's the Alpha and Omega, when he'll tell you, I learned at the foot of, and he lists about 100 MCs that he studied chapter and verse, just like anybody. The thing about hip hop is too is that is immersion. You have to get your fingers dirty. You have to do the work. You are a participant in hip hop culture. Um, that's the difference between it and other things. If without the immersion, you're just on the outside, not fully understanding everything happening. So in terms of white rappers, they're not going away, but they can't be the face of what rap is or hip hop culture is. Okay. Um, uh, weigh in, Daniel. I think the difference between um, white rappers today and white rappers earlier on is that understanding that Dart mentioned, the, the understanding of you can't be the face. I think that part is missing a bit. Um, there's, a, there's a book I'm currently reading called uh, White Negroes that talks about how um, some white artists, you know, let's say Post Malone. All my brothers got that gas and they always be smoking like a rock star. Is a good example of this in you know who used hip hop to establish himself and then began to distance himself um you know kind of like uh using hip hop to go through an, an adolescent phase um uh before progressing to a quote unquote more mature artist um uh, or you know um you know evolving quote unquote into a, a a different artist i think that um there's a b-girl 
and professor named Rockefeller out of New York, and she gave a great example during a talk about not being the face and understanding that it's not an issue being a guest in the culture. Um, she talked about hip hop being like a restaurant. So you come into our communities, you sit at the table, we have a good time, it's fun, we love hosting you and we serve you this meal. And then you leave and you take our recipes, you open your own restaurant in an upscale chic part of town and you put your own spin on it. And then where, when do you come back to us? When do you um, come back to the people who fed you, who taught you? And what are you doing for those communities? And I think that communal aspect um, and that understanding for me, looking looking at these artists emerging is it's missing. It's missing for me that um, that understanding and that true immersion in in the hip hop culture, that true respect for um, those who who are mentoring you and teaching you and encouraging you in the culture. I think that that connection and that um, uh, a dark, that was a great word, immersion, that is, that's what's missing for me today. And what about you, Don Alyssa? Having studied this over time, you can see the difference in the quality of art. Um, one thing I will say, though, is that um, I still see artists emerging today. Like there's artists that might be 13, 14, or 21, 22, um, that are still engaging um, of all identities still engaging that 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 ethic that we all just referenced, um, and because of uh, how media works, we see uh, people who may not be <laughs> doing that work, and it, I think it re is reflected in the quality of what we see. Well, that was a great lead-in to um, the next part of this conversation, which has to do with where hip hop is going in the future, and a little bit about where you see it now, currently. Um, I've been interested in noting some trends that others have raised that, for example, a lot of the young women um, who are in hip hop now are very collaborative with each other, that it's rare that you see one solo album. They usually invite others to participate with them as one thing. Um, uh, then I, I, I am noting that um, it's, Unlike, and I suppose this is true because, you know, you'd, you'd get to know the, the the early folks and you would really know their music and their names. It's hard to know who all of these people are. There seems like thousands of them. And I, maybe I'm just out of it, but I don't have a resonance for but a few. Um, and is that different or not? Don't know. Um, and of course, the global aspect of it, it's, you know, all over the world. And um, we see huge groups um, who have done quite well, who may have immersed or not, but they're doing very well uh, in the name of hip-hop. So any of those pieces I would love you all to respond to as we're talking about the legacy of this uh, 50th anniversary. In terms of like women in rap getting together, I think it has to do with two things. One, uh, there was a time when Nicki Minaj was on top and she kind of hoarded it she kind of hoarded the spotlight and she didn't want to let anybody else come in and take and take it from her. And then when Cardi B and other women came in later, they opened up the floodgates and started collaborating with each other and putting each other on. And the other part of it is just common sense. When you're hot, you put on other hot people. Right now, the hottest people in rap are women. And it's been that way for years. 
And if anybody says otherwise, they are living in a cave or under a rock, or they have their head stuck in the ground like an ostrich. Um, and from the other and the other aspect in terms of like where hip hop is going, hip hop culture is global. It's international. It's not going anywhere. There's still there's still kids and young people uh, being taught the fundamentals of how to do floor work, how to up rock, how to DJ, how to beatbox, you know, how to uh, how to blend, cut, scratch, uh, how to do graffiti art, how to follow a trace a outline in a black book. So hip hop culture is fine. Now the issue is rap. And what's happening with rap on in terms of it being commodified and sold and marketed and it getting watered down because you, there's the rap that people see in the mainstream and then there's the rap which is on the underground or pushed to the margins, which is, you know, still influenced by the wider culture of hip hop, which we rarely see unless we're searching for it or unless we're already fans of it. Um, and I think that that's going to continue. That that uh, is going to widen. I think that chasm is going to widen, where we're going to get an idea of what rap is that people call hip hop versus the rap that is actually you know inspired by and made by people who actually are immersed in or influenced by hip hop culture, and follow the of what rap was to most. Um, and also, it has a lot to do with the fact that music is getting back to how it was in the pre-LP era, where it's very single-based, and it's about melody, and it's about sonics, and it's about feeling more so than trying to get off these bars or make a statement. Some people still do that, but for the most part, it's about trying to get these sounds out. When you look at the early days of rock, the songs were nonsensical, you know, the lyrics didn't make sense, Wooly Bully, uh, you know, splish splash, I was taking a bath, but it didn't matter because it got people dancing. And that's back where we are right now. And I think people will conflate it for uh, this is this is what hip hop is now. No. Music is music and things go in cycles. And I think people need to take that and take that into regard. So, Don Alyssa, uh, at the archive, you know, you all are tasked with trying to uh, collect that which has happened, but also to really sort of have your ear to the ground about where it's going. So you're in a good position to have to see some trends, perhaps, that you can share about where you think um, hip-hop is going. Exactly. Thank you so much. That's why I love the, your curation of what, the music that we listened to together today and shared. Um, I mean, aesthetically, I see aspects of the 70s and the 90s that we love um, back in cycles, you know, back being remixed and as well as innovated on. And so I find the current um, moments in um, hip hop, uh, global hip hop inspiring. I'm excited. There's still inequity. There's still harm and violence in the world. There's still um, global racism and uh, anti-blackness. And, you know, there's still, there's still a need to, for people to have something to say. Um, be it talking about police murder, as we saw with the protests that were happening um, in France um, in 2023 and in 2005. You know, we still see the need for, um, or we still see people engaging hip hop art in, in ways that we've seen before and also remixing 
um, and innovating because that's what hip hop has always done. Um, you get the last word, Danielle. You keep putting me in the hot seat, Callie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, as as everyone was talking and I was thinking about um, the, the future of hip hop, um, most deaths fear not of man um, comes to mind. And in that, in that song, he's largely just talking. A lot of things have changed. A lot of things have not. Mainly us. We're going to get it together, right? I believe that. And one thing he says is everybody asks about the future of hip hop, like hip hop is some giant in the hillside coming down to visit the townspeople. Me, you, everybody, we are hip hop. So hip hop is going where we going. So the next time you ask yourself where hip hop is going, ask yourself, where am I going? He reminds us that we are hip hop. So if we want to know what the future of hip hop is, we have to ask ourselves, what is our future? Where are we going? What are we doing? And I think that is a question that I ask myself as a professor at Berkeley who teaches hip hop classes. I'm asking myself, where do I want to, if my students are looking to me, asking me, where's hip hop going? Where, how do I want to guide them? What do I want them to, to think about in terms of the artists that they're, these are the next artists, these are the next hip hop artists, the next hip hop producers, the next songwriters, the next touring musicians. What do I want them to, to leave knowing so that they can uh, keep hip hop going in a direction that, that I can be proud of as an, as a, I don't want to use the word elder, you know what I'm saying, but as an older, MC, like what, you know, um, how do I want to guide them and what are the things that I need to give them to equip them to make uh, artistic decisions? Because I think, you know, uh, hip hop in particular has been so exploited, as, as Dart said earlier, and that exploitation comes down to um, what decisions artists are making. And so um, I think that um, if we can inspire as as uh, Dr. Don Alyssa is talking about like inspire the youth by creating not just saying you know hip-hop was different when I was growing up or pointing out what we don't like about hip-hop creating um, these events and these forums to to start that transgenerational discourse and reach across generations and see what kinds of what do we have in common and what can we build upon I think uh, when we start to have those conversations together about where we are going and where we want hip hop to go, then we can secure a future of hip hop that is not um, trying to undo the exploitation that is happening because of the capitalistic you know, music industry. We know everybody needs to make money, but we want them to make the right money, money that they can be proud that they have, money that they're not trying, you know, they, we don't want them to be Judas's trying to give back the 30 pieces of silver. We want them to, you know, um, be able to, to, to make the right choices for themselves as artists and for the artists coming up behind them. Well, this has been a great conversation. I thank you all for helping me uh, in discussing Hip Hop's 50th. Thanks for having thank, me. Thanks for having me. Dart Adams is a writer, hip-hop expert, and blogger. Danielle Scott, professor at Berkeley College of Music, a hip-hop MC, and a Brown University PhD student. Don Alyssa Fisher is associate director and co-founder of the Hip-Hop Archive and Research Institute of Harvard University. 
That's it for this week's special edition on the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. We're going out on Players by Boston-born Coy LeRae, who sampled Rapper's Delight 44 years later for her 2023 hit. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH. Produced by Jesse Steinmetz and Miriam Hadara, who is also our intern. Our engineer is Dave Goodman. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Got another shorty, she ain't nothing like me, yeah. About to catch another fight, yeah. The apple bottom make him wanna bite. I just wanna have a good night. I just wanna have a good night. Hold up. If you don't know, now you know. If you broke, then you better let him go. You can have anybody, any money, mo. Cause when you a boss, you could do what you want. Yeah. Cause girls is players too. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Cause girls is players too. Cause girls is players too. Ladies getting money all around the world. Cause girls is players too. I go on and on and on again. He blowing on my phone, but I'm ignoring him. He thinking he the one. I got like four of him. Yeah, I'm sitting first class like bad Victorian. Uh, came a long way from rag to riches. Five star food. Yeah, I taste so delicious. Let him lick the plate. Yeah, I make him do the dishes. Now he on news talk. Cause a bitch we're missing. Sheesh. About to catch another fight. The apple bottom make him wanna bite. I just wanna have a good night. I just wanna have a good night. Hold up. If you don't know, now you know. If you broke, then you gotta let him go. You could have anybody, any money, mo. Cause when you a boss, you could do what you want. Yeah. Cause girls is players too.